Hello, hello, hello. What's up, guys? How's it going? Miss me? <laughs> Jeez, funny story. I asked one of my year 10 students one time when I got there after a few weeks. He's like six foot two, and I was like, Do you miss me? And he just started laughing because it was so awkward. But yeah, I'm back and I'm better. Please rate my podcast before you continue. recorded in a while but i actually kind of like it that way because i didn't really do this to be doing it like every week it's not like a job and stuff it's just when i actually find something interesting i want to talk about then i will and if i don't then i won't simple as but a few things have happened over the past few weeks or so that i thought you know what could be good to talk about because on their own they weren't very interesting things but when you bring them together, they start to get a bit more interesting. So I'm going to start with the ongoing Labour leadership election things. So that's already going on. And it looks like right now, Keir Stammer, oh my goodness, died in war, neoliberal, anti-Palestinian racist. He's going to win. Now, it doesn't look like he's a racist because they don't really bring that up. But to me, if you're someone that, as a lot of the people in our mainstream politics are, just basically deny any human rights to the Palestinians as just a prerequisite. It's almost like it's so casual for them. They don't even view it as racism. I think we have to start calling them out. So any politician that I feel like doesn't even mention the abuses of Israel and their land grabbing and the apartheid in Israel itself, not to mention the Gaza Strip and stuff like that, that's what we should start calling them. We're going to start saying their name and then attaching anti-Palestinian racists to it so people can get a fair idea of who they are. But he's the front runner and it looks like he's going to win. Rebecca Long-Bailey is like the second one. She's like the kind of heir to Jeremy Corbyn. But then again, she signed up to the board of deputies and they're 10 bogus, 10, basically a 10 commandments, which is kind of ironic that it was 10, isn't it? Because 10 commandments was what um, God gave to Moses when he went up to the mountain. So that's kind of symbolic, I guess. But it just continues to baffle me when I feel like they're going to get to a point where they're going to push it too far and then people are just going to like, there's going to be a mass rebellion against it. Because right now, they seem to be very much in a privileged position where people are accepting it seriously that some group can say, oh, we speak for Jews, so we're going to bring out this 10-point thing that everyone who's running in an election has to follow. Which, interestingly, they never mentioned when the Conservatives were running obviously the conservatives are sufficiently anti-palestinian racist so there's no need to tell them you know remind them to be do so they already do that on their own accord anyway so i guess that's why they don't do it so she's everyone but a lot of them have signed up to it some of them haven't the two of the deputies um two of the people running for deputy haven't which is good to see but i don't know why she signed up to it. it was a very stupid thing to do can you imagine if a black person said Oh, I speak for all black people, so I'm going to release 10 things that everyone that's running for this election has to do with, with regards to black people, which is like, oh, never criticise us, never do this, never do that. They'll be laughed off. Like, well, you, don't be ridiculous. You don't have to do anything you say. Like, and they wouldn't even understand it. It would just be so ridiculous. But these people are doing it. And of course, a lot of the, the basically saying, oh, oppose BDS, which how can you tell people what to oppose and what not to oppose? I think it speaks a lot to how non-organic their movement is, that they have to basically force people to acquiesce to their demands, which I feel like the people that are running against it should start exploiting. Like, 
don't tell us what to do. If your movement is so good, people will just do that of their own accord. BDS is something that's actually moral. So again, it's interesting to see they're not going to oppose it on a moral grounds. Just say it's anti-Semitic. Why is it anti-Semitic? Oh, we, we don't know. Was opposing South Africa apartheid? That wouldn't even be racist because the white people were the one doing the apartheid, but it was still a majority black country. So how would that work? That was anti-African or something? Again, no one would ever challenge that because, again, they rewrite the history as though they wasn't supporting it the whole time and make it seem like, oh, no, of course, we know, we're, not, we're not for that. you know. But, but now they can just seriously say opposing apartheid in a country is racist. What are you talking about? And I think also the interesting thing is they don't even mention the apartheid in Israel. A lot of it is always to do with the treatment of the Palestinians, which is actually abhorrent, but I don't think a lot of people know this. 20% of Israel's citizens are actually Arabs. Type, different types of Palestinians and Lebanese and different, different, other different groups. And they literally don't have the same privileges that the full Jewish people have. So you have Jewish citizenship, which... Of course, it's such a racist and exclusionary term because that wouldn't stand in any country, no matter what number of, you know, even in Nigeria. Nigeria is a population that has probably 99.9% black, you know, native population. But we're not going to write in the constitution that only black people get to have the rights enjoyed by Nigerian citizens, are we? Because there's just no need to do that. Like, even if, of course, there are non-black Nigerian citizens and nationals but it still wouldn't make it right if there were none because there's no real reason to do that what you're going to do is create a tiered citizenship system which they have which is so racist and again this is why they refuse to talk about it because even if you bring that up to a you know uh an audience that is naturally disposed to quote-unquote support israel whatever that means they can't defend that so they'll literally strive their hardest to never bring this up in discussion because you can't defend it and they'll start talking about other types of red herrings and stuff like that but in any case sadly it looks like this guy is going to win and he's a complete dialing the wall neoliberal basically a right winger that speaks the language of the left but interestingly jeremy corbyn has managed to move the labor party so far left that even he's talking about public ownership which is something you never thought you'd see as a main party platform so i guess that's kind of encouraging on that front now, a lot of them have been getting dropped out. Clive Lewis ran for like two minutes. And his candidacy was interesting because he was, again, speaking the language of the left. But I never really thought he was, you know, that much of a, you know, interesting character before he ran. But the, there was an interview he did on, I think it was BBC. I think he's become a trend now, I don't know, in, in UK politics where they asked us stupid questions. And the dumbest one of all is always, would you push the nuclear button? We had in the last um, election cycle for the December 12th election, Joe Swinton, and she was like, yes, she didn't even think about it. And you have to think, this gives you a window into the psychopathy of these people. These people are deranged. Not only should these people not be leading us, they should be quarantined from us. They don't belong in the same society is us and again, even the people asking these questions should also be quarantined with them because they're deranged also asking someone would you press the nuclear button is a bit like asking someone would you blow up your house well of course not there's no ifs or buts about it would you blow up your house if 
there was burglars in it. No. Would you blow up your house if, God forbid, your daughter was getting raped in it? No. Would you blow up your house if all your belongings were stolen? No. Would you blow up your house if your family died in it? No. There's no plausible scenario in which someone would agree to blow up their house. So why would they ask, would you push the nuclear button? They know what that's going to lead to. Nuclear winters, nuclear disasters. Because first of all, there's only a handful of countries that have nuclear weapons. I don't know if you guys know this. The Security Council 5, actually, yes. Security Council 5 and North Korea and a few, Israel and a few other countries. Now, whichever country uses it, it's going to be, let's say India uses it. Definitely Pakistan's going to have to use it back. Or if North Korea uses it, America's going to, well, America uses it against North Korea. North Korea uses it back. Then China will have to use it. And everyone's going to use it. And we only need about probably not that many, very many of them. Because the ones that were used in, what's it called? In Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Compared to the ones we have now, that's like dropping a stone in a swimming pool. The ones we have now are like, <laughs> they're real like, you know, life enders is what we have now. We only need about, I think, a hundred of them to be used to destroy the whole planet. Because even if we don't kill everyone, if we kill about a billion people, there will be a nuclear winter in which... The sun won't be able to shine through and won't be able to grow anything and everyone's going to die. So why would anyone in their right mind... It takes two minutes to know this. Just go on to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and they list out what's going to happen in these scenarios. Why would anyone in their right mind ask someone, would you use this device? We live on this earth too. Do you guys realise this? This is not like, you know, these other bombs we just drop. We just drop them somewhere else and, you know, we don't care what happens. We live... This is our home too, you idiots. So, they they asked Clive Lewis that question. Oh, the brain dead person that asked him. I just I just need five minutes with these people, honestly. And he said, "Oh, I can't think of a scenario in which I would." But she then she tried to keep on keep on pushing him. But what if this? But what if that? What if nothing? You idiots! What kind of stupid question? But again, if that was me, I would ask that question. Yes. Yeah, so what if someone was burgling your home? Would you bomb it? You bowed up and went. But what if? What if this? And they start giving up more and more dumb scenarios. In what scenario would it be justifiable or make any sense to destroy your home? None, fool. So why would you ask such a dumb question? But again, I guess this is what they view as like journalism or insightful questioning because the questions make no sense. We should be trying to get rid of nuclear weapons because we really know they're for two things. It's either someone's going to be dumb enough to use them in which we all die or we're all just going to play a big game of chicken in which everyone knows using them is going to lead to that and no one uses it in the first place, which is what we've been in since the, the Cold War in the, began in the 50s. Everyone knows you can't use it because we're all going to die. Like, what, kind of, what kind of victory is that where we all die? So we, we're at that point now and more and more they make, the more and more they're powerful and strong. It's basically just stealing money for these defense contractors. So why are you asking these dumb questions? Do you want to die? No, I don't want to die. So maybe we should put you on a different planet where you get to use your nuclear weapons and, you know, show you have a big dick and then you die. But that's fine for you, but not for us. But again, they don't answer with... This is why I just feel like the left, man, they're so weak. They don't answer with that strength. They just answer like, you know, dumbly. Like, I can't think of a scenario. Can you think of a scenario which would use it? You fool. But that was very, very annoying. And... um. I mean, I guess to his credit, he didn't say, oh, if this, if it was the last resort, blah, blah. Because think about it. What do we even fight wars for anyway? Greed and money. So he said not someone gets so power and money hungry, they decide to destroy the planet, including themselves. I mean, if we get to that stage, then maybe we do deserve 
to be destroyed as a civilization. If that's, you know, we get so money hungry, not we, they, that's them, that they decide to destroy the universe, or the planet, not the universe, just so they can make a few extra billions, because that's what we fight wars for anyway. We don't fight wars for anything serious. It's all about exploitation and stealing other people's resources. So if we want to destroy our planet, which we are doing anyway with fossil fuels and stuff, but obviously much quicker using nuclear weapons, then okay, go right ahead. And I also think to highlight the nature of the psychopathy of the people that are leading this, I know a lot of people don't know this, but in 2019, the US every year they do what they call a nuclear posture review where they talk about, you know, circumstances in which they'll use nuclear weapons again. These are the deranged people that run our society, by the way, actually discussing the possibilities in which it would be okay to end human civilization. I mean, these are sane people, apparently. These are people we trust to look us, look after us and keep us safe. I mean, it's a joke. But in that um, document, again, this is the kind of media we have that they don't report on it when our leaders are talking about the possibility of ending our lives as we know it. We always see these films about, oh, these Russian people, you know, steal these nuclear weapons and they're going to destroy just destroy the world just because they're evil and they just want to. We even saw, like, in Avengers, Thanos basically said he had to, like, destroy half the world because he has to be reborn and the world is too far gone to be saved, which, in a maniacal, evil way, I kind of agree with him, but obviously not for his reasons. But anyway, I'll set that out very soon. I am very pessimistic about our future as a civilization. But anyway, to get back to this nuclear posture review, which I will link to in the description and you can read, they talk about using low-yield nuclear weapons. I mean, that basically means instead of making the ones they have now that can kill maybe 10, 15 million people, maybe they create they create one that can kill maybe half a million people because they don't want to... I'm guessing they don't want to use the one that can kill 100 million people because obviously that's going to invite other countries that have them to use them too and their rationale for this was because they want to be able to end wars decisively and quickly so basically what's happening now is like america will go into a place to try and do a war but the farmers they just thought they'd kill off in like two three minutes they have some weapons too and so they can fight back which is not very good for them because then the longer they're there the longer their people start opposing the wars and saying what the hell are we doing in these places killing farmers for no reason so what they want to do is be able to use nuclear weapons to end the war quickly and decisively, as they call it. And they talk about how this is going to be on a first use. So they, they're going to use it if they feel there's any threat of someone else using it, which basically means no threat. They're just going to make up a threat and use it anyway. And then that's just going to be that. I mean, again, these are the kind of people we have running our society. You know, when they talk about... <laughs> The craziness is from the top. You know, we talk about people, you know, they, the police intercept someone trying to bomb some public place or trying to commit a terrorist attack. And everyone goes, wow, this person really has a, you know, a mental health issue. This is a crazy person. You know, we have to lock them up, you know. But we have people that are actively planning how to end our civilization. And not only are they walking free in society, they're the ones running the society. I mean, again, incredible stuff. And that actually kind of segues me nicely into my next discussion. Just incredible. And what you're going to have is, you're going to see in the news, North Korea don't want to give up their nuclear weapons. The madman Kim Jong-un is refusing. 
the crazy people. And I mean, it's quite incredible how, you know, even someone with an IQ of 10 would ask the obvious question, wait, don't we have nuclear weapons too? Why should they have to give it up when we have it? So obviously they're going to say, well, we're, we're the ones that have a right to have them. Those other countries don't, obviously, because they're it's typical racist talk. But then those other countries read the news. They see what happened to Libya, Syria. They see what happens when you don't have nuclear weapons. And you get raped by a bayonet and you end up dead. Like um, Gaddafi did in Libya after giving up his nuclear weapons. And they also read this story about, you know, the low-yield nuclear weapons, which actually came out as I was recording this podcast. Now, the people in North Korea and Kim Jong-un and all that, they're going to read that story. And be like, so these people want to use low-yield nuclear weapons against us. But when the media reports why they won't give up their weapons, they won't talk about this. This is nowhere on the news. Why would they, are they, are they honestly they're crazy, why would they give up their nuclear weapons when people are developing low-yield nuclear weapons to basically to use against them? I mean, again, they're going to report this as like completely one-sided. But where are the crazy people here? Where are the madmen? Like, it's quite incredible, but... I guess I've come to not expect much from the media, so it really shouldn't surprise me their duplicity and racism in thinking we can just have a right to destroy wherever we want in the world and, you know, they, they can't fight back. They can't do nothing about it. If I was North Korea, I wouldn't give up any nuclear weapons. There's, there's no chance in hell because there's no way I'm trusting these Americans to hold up their end of any deal we sign. We just see what happened with Iran. They signed a deal with America. The next president came in, ripped up the deal. Now they just killed one of their top generals. They're basically at a state of war with them after signing a deal with them just six, seven years ago. So how can you trust the word these people are saying? Because over the past few months, I'd say, I've become more and more of a prison abolitionist. But what I find is that even though the arguments for it seem quite, I don't want to say obvious to me because I wasn't thinking of it five years ago or anything like that. But even though it seems quite intuitive to me, the more I think about it, a lot of people struggle to, you know, get their head around this. I was talking to one of my friends about it and she basically called me so many names and accused me of so many things because I believe that. Because I was saying to her, I don't believe we should, you know, imprison people. But the re- I mean, the reasons for why I don't believe it, they're, they're very multi-layered. But one of the reasons is what I was talking about earlier in that the people that we call crazy and deranged and stuff, what they do compared to what we, the people we have leading our society are doing, it's a drop in, it's a drop in water, you know. I wrote an article, an article on my blog, I think it was chapter 30-something or 29, something like that, where I compared Ted Bundy to Barack Obama. Now, Ted Bundy is a guy that is responsible for about how many? I think it's 33. I think he might have killed more, but about 33 people. And everyone, you know calls him like one of the most deranged psychopaths ever. Barack Obama is responsible for easily, easily half a million dead, maybe more. And if, and he smiles in people's faces and everyone just looks at him and thinks, oh yeah, this is the same guy, you know, I'd love to invite him to my home and he's cool and funny and stuff. This guy literally is responsible for killing people. He was literally, he's literally bragged about it too. He said, turns out I'm really good at killing people. This was an article that was written you know, widely read. It wasn't just some kind of fringe thing that people accused him of and, you know, he denied saying. It's on record that he said this. You know, this is a person that's killed thousands times more than, you know, Ted Bundy, which is one of the people 
regarded as one of the most deranged people ever. And yet they're running our society. So my argument is that if we have people like that, not only actively in our society, but running it, and everyone just accepts that, and society hasn't collapsed, quote-unquote, then surely these people that are killing two, three, five people, not that it's not bad, I know that we need to like encourage them to kill more, but surely it can't be, you know, <laughs> compared to those people, well, they've done nothing. So that was one of my, you know, what's it called, opinions that the the kind of stereotypical view we have of these so-called criminals is a bit view is a bit warped because we have far more dangerous criminals running our society even like the bankers and stuff that are responsible for crashing the economies or jeff bezos and these people that you know make all the billions while their employees like make minimum wage and have to work two free jobs again these are deranged people this is evil what they're doing compare the evil of someone like jeff bezos who I think employees have actually died working at Amazon. Or and then he pays them like, you know, tiny wages and they have to unionize and fight and claw and all this before he pays them and the result of him paying such low wages is that first he's making too much money for someone to spend in several lifetimes, probably in the whole of our civilization. If you had that money you probably wouldn't have finished spending it. Especially at the rate he keeps making it. And the result of that is also People working two to three jobs, people having no societal, you know, no enjoyment, no leisure, people working two, you know, three jobs, working all hours of the day, every week, you know, people not having time for their family, for their, and this is not just, you know, two, three people, this is several hundreds of thousands of people. Is what he's doing, is it worse than someone who's raped someone? Yes! He's essentially raping hundreds of thousands of people. Is responsible personally for their despair. He's the reason they can't sleep at night. He's the reason they don't have time for their family. He's the reason marriages are being dissolved. People take their lives because, you know, they're so stressed. These people are responsible for this. You know, the bankers are responsible for people's homes being foreclosed and people losing their life savings, people losing their jobs. A lot of people commit suicide because of that. We have, you know, in in the West now, diseases of despair, which lead to death of despair. I don't know if you guys have heard that phrase before. But that basically means people are dying because of artificial reasons. They're not dying because of illness or natural causes. They're dying because of suicides. Why? Because they're drinking. They're stressed. They're worried about, you know, their mortgages. They're worried about, you know, we had like a few cases in the UK now of, People that are on universal credit killing themselves. There was a father of three that killed himself because his benefits were late and he was in so much debt. Now, those are three kids that don't have a father they're going to grow up with. Who's responsible for that? Politicians that are writing just inhumane social security um, policies that force people like that to those decisions. These are deaths of despair. We have that rampant in our society. How is what they've done Worse than what someone who's raped or murdered someone is. Again, not to talk of the reasons why this happened, because we have to look into the layers. Sometimes, you know, people kill people because they have mental illnesses, they kill people because of, you know, different reasons. So let's not even talk of that. But we don't even diagnose these people with mental illnesses. The people that are writing these inhumane, harsh laws. We have people that are responsible for deporting British citizens to their deaths. I mean, think of it. Even if they weren't British citizens, these people went to the hospital 
they had cancer. You said, oh, prove you're British. Oh, okay, I can't prove it. I'm sorry. We're not going to give you cancer treatment. What kind, of, what, what kind of society is that? I mean, there are people responsible for writing these laws. And we don't, you know, ever inquire into whether these people are deranged or not. Because why else would someone restrict someone else from getting cancer treatment because they haven't got a paper to prove they're citizens? Even if they didn't, if they, even if they weren't citizens, so what? You're going to let them die because of a piece of paper? I mean, again, these are the kind of people we have running our societies. So when people say to me that we have to absolutely keep people locked away because they're anything, pedophiles, sex offenders, murderers, whatever, I'm, I turn to them and say, look at the kind of people I've been describing in this voice note, voice note in this podcast. Like I said, not only do we have those people out and about in society, they are in the very, you know, holes of power in our society. And we're worrying about those people that are killing one or two people, destroying it. People destroying our societies are at the very top. So that's one of the reasons why I've come to oppose that. Because again, it's very unfair to the people committing the, the people committing the real crimes, they don't even in prison. They're rewarded for their crimes. People like Tony Blair, responsible for over a million people dead. I mean, think of that number. This guy was a they have this guy on the BBC the other day. This guy's responsible for I can't even imagine a million people passing away, like dying. But they, I'm trying to close my eyes to imagine now. Just close your eyes and imagine that for a second. Think of the time when you heard of, I don't know, a loved one or a close person that you know. Kobe Bryant died recently. Think of how the world almost like stood still and they were mourning him. Now imagine that, but a million of those. Because all those families that have people die, to them, those people are much bigger than Kobe. So now think of that situation and think of a million of those people dying. And you have people who are responsible for these people's lives by lying us into a war for all profiteering and blood money. And they're on TV giving opinions and people are listening to them and taking them seriously. This is the kind of society we have. So if you want to talk about making a better society, we have to start looking at these other people committing crime. And the second thing about crime, so-called crime anyway... Is the, is the psychological aspect. I've, again, I've been looking for people to talk about this with, but it seems like no one wants to come on to talk about this because it's, maybe they can't understand my views or I don't know what it is. But on a psycholo- psychological, on a, on a philosophical level, what does crime mean? Like, What are the motivations for crime? Obviously, you have crimes of passion where, I don't know, opportunity crimes where people just, you know, they don't really care much about it. They just happen to be in a situation where they could do it and they did it. You have situations where crimes of passion, where, you know, they, they have some kind of inner urge to do it, which kind of points to a more of a mental, I don't know, mental thing, I don't know. And then you have desperation sometimes, you know, where burglaries because you're poor or, you know, stealing because, you know, you need money, you need drugs, blah, blah. But if you took those three things away, even if you just look at crime of opportunity or crimes of passion... It's still very confusing why people would do that. So I think my interest in that is more on a academic level as well. What would push someone to say, I just looked at this window and it was open, so I jumped into it and killed a person I found in the house? That's a confusing thing to do. Oddly enough, that doesn't necessarily speak to how dangerous that person might be in the future. Because for all we know, someone else that hasn't been committed of a crime is just one open window away from doing the same thing. But it's 
so fascinating to me as though why would someone what's the more like why would they want to do something like that we don't know and i think if we start to study it we could learn a lot more about it and actually prevent crime than just locking them up and throwing away the key and not trying to figure out why exactly this has happened you know on a kind of psychological level i know there's some of some work of that that have been done on that kind of but i think when you look at the vast majority of crime a lot of it's completely random as well a lot of people are locked up in america for example for just completely punitive things like three strikes and all that kind of stuff and even when you think about even horrible crimes let's say someone did rape someone someone did i don't know whatever it is think of the worst crime you can think of but then there wasn't you know mentally unwell stuff like that and then you know they they went to prison or whatever it was that they were arrested you know the whole case was unfolded and they showed genuine repentance because again i know people are gonna say oh my god you're gonna figure how can you say we have to re- rehabilitate you know pedophiles and sex offenders and rapists jesus yeah jesus the one we all know and love called for forgiveness for everyone jesus forgives some very very bad apples let's not forget that and god himself you know forgives everyone doesn't he that comes to him with an open genuine heart so don't start making me like some kind of antichrist for doing what your good lord tells you to do but if someone was in that situation and they showed that clear repentance and they said, for example, we're going to sentence you to 60, okay, we don't even have that here, but let's say 60 years in prison for, I don't know, a rape or something, or even 10 years, 15 years. How many years do they need to feel genuinely sorry and repentant for that? Is it 15 years? Because any time, the long, like, when you keep them in longer than they actually need to, you know, rehabilitate and repent, now it just becomes completely punitive. We're just punishing them, whatever that means for them doing that and i just don't feel on a, again on a on a philosophical level i don't feel that the state should have the power to quote unquote punish anyone for anything it shouldn't be a thing that the state does because it doesn't really make any sense they shouldn't have that power because they completely abuse it as we see in the case of julian assange if we didn't have a system like we do now julian assange will be free but Right now, they're punishing him, quote-unquote, for no reason, really, obviously. But obviously, they're, they're claiming some other ridiculous reasons. And that's why he's locked up right now. And now because of that, they use that to put him in solitary confinement and deny him this, deny him that. All because we have a system that says we're going to lock people away as a means of, quote-unquote, punishing them, whatever that means, for their perceived injustice. How that actually serves society, how that benefits us how that helps that person be able to be assimilate into society when they move in or why we should even need to do that in the first place it's not really clear if you think of the state as some kind of a moral you know institution that's just kind of involved in it i think of a state like a parent that's how kind of the, the, the role the state has isn't it it kind of brings cases for victims just because that's his job isn't it a crown prosecutor doesn't bring a case because they care much about the person in the case. They do it because that's their job. So think of a case of, I don't know, someone was raped and the state, you know, obviously they brought a charge against the alleged rapists. The state doesn't have a material interest whether or not that person, you know, gets five years or 10 years or 50 years. They're just doing their jobs. So when you think of it in that respect, why should they have have the power to 
quote unquote punish that person? What does that actually serve? What is the point of quote unquote punishing them? Think of a state as a parent. So the parent is like an adjudicator. So imagine you're you have two children. One of them runs up to you and says, Oh, the other one slapped me. Would you say to make it fair and to provide justice, you would slap the other child? I mean, I would hope not, because that doesn't make any it doesn't solve anything. What he should be doing is trying to teach the other one why he shouldn't slap him, understand the reasons why he did. If there was, a, you know, if there was an argument, there was get the context of it, and then work to ways where you can, you know, bring them both together. Now, I'm not saying making, you know, the rapist and the rapey is that a thing, you know, into one happy family where they all sing kumbaya and all that. But I think there are ways in which you can rehabilitate both people. That doesn't involve. Throwing away someone and locking away the key. Because suppose someone did do that and you sentenced them to prison for 10 years. And then what? If they came out, theoretically, they could do it again. So you sending them away and quote-unquote punishing them has really no bearing on, you know, why they did it, what the situation was. You know, all the other things that you really need to know as a state to investigate this and see, you know, what exactly is causing this. It is an odd thing to do and we should want to know more about it. Also, another fascinating thing about crime, well, actually put crime in quotation marks now, given what I've been talking about, is that crime tails off significantly past the age of 50. Like, the percentage of people committing crimes after that age is just ridiculously low. To a point where it doesn't really make any sense, given that it's more of an exception to the rule, it doesn't really make any sense to keep people in prison past that age anyway. Which again begs the question, why do you have to keep them in for that long if they've shown? I think you should have a situation where, I wouldn't say an open-ended sentence, but one where once they've, you know, shown enough that they've sufficiently overcame this, just let them out. Because I, I don't really think it serves a purpose, but I understand a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that, so um, it's fair enough. But... um. leave it there I um, just wanted to get those things off my chest I hadn't um, like I said I didn't think there was enough to make a full episode about one particular thing I did kind of enjoy the way that I talk about a few things in one podcast because that way I don't kind of rant on and on about one specific thing so I think that's kind of good as well again do not forget if you actually managed to listen to the end well done by the way first of all secondly do not forget to rate my podcast an Apple podcast. I don't know why Spotify doesn't have a rating system, but this is very, very important to help me spread the word. I hope you guys actually, you know, anyone that's listening is actually enjoying it and learning from it, which is the most important thing. So um, I'll speak to you guys soon.